You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 86 of the Common Descent Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we are discussing New Zealand. I've heard of that place. Yeah, New Zealand is a pretty awesome place. We're going to discuss it today because it was requested by some cool people. Yeah, and because it's a pretty awesome place. Oh, let me guess that too. Uh, We'll see. The episode isn't over yet. Check back in an hour and a half. He says, grossly (laughs) underestimating the length of the episode. (laughs) Well, now I've got to prove you wrong. (laughs) So this episode was requested. We have our patrons Samuel and Greta, Wayne, and Allison all requested this episode. So thanks for the great topic. At least one of those people is from New Zealand. Which is so cool. So yeah. And when we posted the teaser online, a bunch of people got really excited about it. So... We're excited to talk about New Zealand, too. Absolutely. So, New Zealand. Most of us are familiar with it. Lots of movies have been shot there. Yep. And it is island nation. I, I go to say off the coast of Australia, but like way off the coast of Australia. Yeah, nearest to Australia. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to use another continent as a reference. Right. But island nation that is famous for extreme extremely weird wildlife partially due to its isolation but also just due to weirdness like it just is weird there's not a single aspect of the ecosystem there that's not unique yeah it's just a strange place it's a strange place it is a silly place let's go there that's the wrong movie (laughs) (laughs) it was famously shot in new zealand (laughs) (laughs) so we're gonna discuss a bit of what New Zealand is today, what makes it famous just by today's standards. How did New Zealand come to be New Zealand? You know, the geographic history and some of the fossil history. And you'll notice when I start that I'm not going to be mentioning birds much because that's going to get a section all at the end. So don't worry. Yeah. (laughs) The birds are coming. (laughs) (laughs) So... The birds show up at the end to save the day yes. at the very end of the movie. Yeah. Despite having not been there Because the whole I time. wrote myself into a corner <laughs> when I was putting this episode together. That's the right movie. <laughs> but first, some announcements. Okay. So, I mentioned one of our patrons requested this episode. You did. Which gives the hint that we do have a Patreon. We sure do. And if you subscribe with us on that Patreon at the certain level... We are going to shout your name out on this here podcast to thank you for your patronage. And we've been doing that with a few people. With a few for for the last last, uh, several episodes. Just a few. So here's just a few more. Of our newest, like last two weeks. Yes. Of new higher level patrons. So welcome Christy, Uti, Felix, Don, AJ, Ari, and Francis. Thanks, literally everyone my goodness <laughs> it, it's i am overwhelmed now we said this at the end of the last episodes could we because we forgot to say it at the beginning of the last episode but we are always super grateful to patrons mm-hmm. we are always grateful any level of patron even if you're don't getting your name no, shout out thank you to all of you and especially thank you to those who are donating now 
Yes, during these weird, difficult times. There's a pandemic on, and we know a lot of people are in financially difficult times, and a lot of people have a lot of stuff going on. We hope everyone's staying safe and healthy. And my goodness, we've been getting more new patrons during this time, and that's incredible. It's genuinely really touching. It means a lot. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, uh, agree. <laughs> agree, agree, agree. <laughs> But we also have some other announcements. We have some new stuff coming up. We do. We have some new things. Uh, one's a thing that we're finally able to announce that we've been working on. Been sitting on this one. For a little bit. We have some art. Official Common Descent podcast art. Commissioned from Rob Soto, who drew us a couple of different pieces of art that we will share so you all can see. But we're also putting them on some merchandise on our Zazzle store. So check out social media for the yes. images and links to Rob's website and such because go check him out because oh, he's, he's awesome. He's The stuff he creates is fantastic. And go to the Zazzle store. New merch. Yeah. So some a little bit higher quality than the logo we created on PowerPoint. Hey now. <laughs> I, I, a little. A I little. <laughs> put a lot of effort into what is literally. So all the graphic designers out there, sit down. <laughs> our logo is a series of lines on powerpoint yep <laughs> moved into the shape of a tree yep because that's the level we're you working coiled at. over a keyboard i worked real hard on that <laughs> uh, you know you got to wrestle powerpoint <laughs> to, do it, to do what you wanted to do well now we have some fancy you know official quote-unquote art yeah, I, I mean i i would say that the difference between rob's art and my art is that one of them is art <laughs> and you should go check it out because we're sharing it all over uh and a big thanks to rob so we'll put uh, uh that all over the social medias and another thing we have coming up is so as many of you are aware we did a series of silver screen sciences uh quarantine silver screen which yep uh, which we did not call it we did not call it we because did not call it silver screen in quarantine i think is what cheryl called yes because cheryl's <laughs> m cl more clever than us and we didn't yeah. think of it until she told us it <laughs> but we did a few so if you haven't listened to those the last several weeks give them a listen this coming month we have plans for a new you know at least few part series where we will be doing live chats live discussions q a's with some of our friends our fellow scientists on topics we've already covered, and now we're going to bring in a specialist to just do some Q&A. So we're doing the first one, uh, the, the Wednesday after this podcast goes out, so May 6th, which we'll be inviting our friend Leah to talk about ancient DNA. It's going to be a live Q&A, which means you're going to be able to join in. We'll be streaming on YouTube, so you can join the chat, ask questions in there. But in the lead up to it, we are collecting questions. So if you have questions you want to put on our list to ask Leah about ancient DNA, send them in. Twitter, Facebook, however you want to do it. Look for the social media posts and respond to those. And yeah, we're just going to maybe in you know, an hour or so throw a bunch of questions and have a conversation with our friend and talk about ancient DNA. And it'll be the first in a series. So we've got a handful of these lined up. So keep your eyes out for that and join us. And if you miss the live event, we will be sharing the audio. So don't worry. Everyone will get to hear it. Yes. They should be. Uh, the audio and video will both be saved. So you yes. can check those out. And finally, uh, as far as our weekly doings goes, we are still doing our Netflix party nights. Yes, we are. Where we are streaming on Netflix with chat 
as we watch sometimes good, sometimes bad sci-fi <laughs> movies. We were doing some for Silver Screen Science. Mm-hmm. We're not currently doing those, but we are still doing those most weeks these days. So if you have Google Chrome and you have Netflix, keep an eye on social media. And if you have the time, join in and watch movies with us. Because it's fun to do, so why stop? Yeah. <laughs> and that about wraps up our announcements. Which brings us to the news. Ewan. <laughs> I've been, I apologize, let everyone. Me, let me check the recording. I've been waiting several minutes to make that joke. So news, every episode <laughs> uh, we talk about news and paleontology, right? Yeah, why don't you start it off as punishment? <laughs> <laughs> as punishment? That was a pun, you see. <laughs> My first bit of news is about lizards. Specifically, the evolution of a thing in lizards. All right. Or rather, a lizard today that might be indicative of what the evolution of lizards might have been like. I'm, I'm following you so far, I'll I say on. confidently. <laughs> this is research by Melanie Laird et al. in Biology Letters, and we'll link to an article on the conversation written by two of the researchers, Melanie Laird and Camilla Whittington. As we've discussed on the podcast in the past, when it comes to vertebrate reproduction, there are two general strategies. You can lay eggs or you can give live birth. Oviparous creatures are egg layers. The, the embryos rely on an egg yolk for nutrition during development. Viviparous animals are live bearers, which will support the embryo inside the body, sometimes with a partial egg, sometimes with something wholly different like a placenta like mammals do. But, as always, it's not a even one-to-one, these animals do what these animals don't. Nope. Viviparity, so live birth, has evolved a bunch of times. And because I found an article, there was a, a, another study linked in this article that had a list. I'm going to read this list because I think it's fascinating. Live birth has evolved among vertebrates about 13 times in bony fish, about 9 different times in cartilaginous fish, about 8 times in amphibians, about 6 times among extinct relatives, one time at the base of mammals, and at least, according to this research, 115 times in squamates, which is lizards and snakes. Yeah, squamates really like to just skip the egg. They, they, they uh, It's just happened so many times. But there is this question about the transition. How does the transition from egg laying to live birth happen? Because it involves, you know, you have to lose the eggshell at least Oftentimes, partially, sometimes, all the whole way. The female is retaining the embryo inside the body, which is a whole new set of requirements. Mammals and some other animals have placenta or placenta-like organs that help. So these researchers were looking at a specific species of lizard to explore how it might indicate how that transition might happen. Cool. Because while there are many lizards today that are either egg bearers or live birthers, There are a few, including two Australian skinks, that do both. They are called bimodally reproductive. They're known to do both. So, for example, the one they're looking at is the three-toed skink, Cyphos equalis, which looks like it's got this long body and these tiny little legs. In this species, the reproductive strategy varies by geographic location. Weird. So the northern population, the the northern uh, members give live birth, and then the more southern population lay eggs. But it's not just the environment, because researchers have taken lizards from one population and moved them to the other location, and they'll still do the thing they were doing already. 
Okay, so they don't switch when they move. Right. It's not just that it's a something about the environment. There is a genetic component to the po- this population does one, this population does the other. That's that's a bit more reasonable. It would have been weird if you just were able to switch right. as soon as you walked over the border. Exactly. Well, just wait. <laughs> so this particular research is strange because they observed a lizard doing something we've never seen a lizard do before. One particular member of the three-toed skink, so one individual, they, it was a live-bearing individual. So one of the, from a population that would typically bear live young, but they observed it lay three eggs. Hmm. So it belonged to the live birth group, but it laid eggs. And then three weeks later, gave live birth to a baby from the same litter as the eggs. <laughs> so this wasn't like it had it laid some eggs, then got pregnant again, then that time decided to give live birth. It was developing four babies, gave, hatched, uh, uh, laid three of them in eggs, and then held on to the last one and gave live birth. Bizarre. <laughs> And it's not just that it kicked out a bunch of eggs because the embryos had failed. The researchers collected two of the eggs and incubated them, and one of them hatched into a perfectly healthy baby. Okay. And then the live baby was also perfectly healthy. This lizard switched not just the same lizard, the same batch of babies. Yeah. It switched between egg laying and live birth. This is, as far as the researchers are aware... The first time we've ever seen a vertebrate do this. And it suggests that there is some sort of uh, mechanism for these lizards to choose. I put choose in quotation marks. Yeah. Like they have, there is some control over, I can, get, I can lay eggs or I can give live birth. But they were interested to take a closer look at, is this unusual in any other way? And they found that indeed it is. They took a close examination of the eggs. And they found that the egg shell was thinner than what you would see in lizards that more habitually lay eggs, but not quite as thin as the egg coverings that are retained in the lizards that give that in, in what you'd expect from a live bearing lizard. Yeah, so it's a intermediate between the the two groups as far as how much egg had for, uh, egg shell had formed. Yes. I mean that that makes sense. It's still weird. <laughs> it's very strange. <laughs> And it indicates, you know, so often when we think of transitions, we picture something in between, right? An animal that's halfway between being aquatic and being terrestrial is amphibious, right? It lives on the shoreline or something. And you kind of imagine that the transition from egg laying to live bearing might be, okay, thinner and thinner eggs, or maybe you retain the embryo longer and yeah, longer, there's whatever. less and less time of them being outside the body until finally it's just them hatching live. But this lizard suggests that it is possible to have a successful strategy where you have both options. <laughs> I mean, if you, you know, if you're an egg layer and you lay, you know, five eggs, it'd be a lot of work to do all five at once. So you work on one at a time. Right. And you slowly, <laughs> you slowly work down until you're just giving live birth to all five. And they point out that there, there may be that there are triggers for what would induce you to do one or the other. So the, the way they uh, suggest some ideas, for example, if there are harsh conditions out, like if it's a particularly cold season, 
it might be better to hold on to the embryos so they're not in eggs out in danger. But if it's nice out, if you don't have to do that, it's a lot less taxing on the mom to just lay the eggs instead of having to hold on to the babies. Yeah, eggs are very energy efficient because now they are separate from you. You aren't being burdened down by all these young inside your body. Now, as usual, this is the kind of thing where we don't know that that's how the transition happens. And we don't know that this lizard is in the transitional state or whatever. But it exists as a viable possibility. Yeah, it's well, it's added a new option to the, to, you know, to what was on the table when previously we wouldn't have considered this as a, a, a mechanism. Right. Well, if somebody had said it, they would have been like, oh, well, what if they could do both? We would have said, well, we've never seen an yeah, animal that can do like, that. I mean... Th- Sure, that's a neat idea, but, but maybe but... show me the. Oh, there it is. Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh, <laughs> there it was in Australia. <laughs> now I don't know how we would find this in the fossil record, short of finding like a lizard nesting on a bunch of eggs with an embryo <laughs> still inside its body. Yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> but... just a mom and a baby both laying on top of eggs. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe someday. Yeah, it's it's bizarre because. It seems like those two strategies should be so fundamentally different. Like, when you you compare our birth to an egg birth, they feel very alien from one another. Mm -hmm. So to see that it's really, that the line between the two is actually much thinner is is very intriguing. uh, As is usually the case. Yeah, which has huge effects on how we understand evolution. Because without something like this that gap between the two might still have seemed like a big evolutionary step. Evidently, it's not as big a step as you might think. uh, Lizards are real good at this. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cool. My first bit of news is about giant sharks and why maybe they went extinct. Oh, boy. This is research by Patrick Jambura and Jürgen Krewit in Plus One, and the article is by Nina... Pulano in inverse. Ooh. And this is discussing a group of ancient sharks, the genus Tychodus, which were known to grow very large, like up to 30 to 32 feet long. Yeah, these are Cretaceous sharks. Cretaceous sharks. So yeah. 85 million years ago was when these sharks disappeared. And the question has been why? Yeah, because that's. 20 million years before the end Cretaceous mass extinction. Exactly. So what caused these giant dominant sharks to go extinct? It's the same question that gets asked about Megalodon quite often and mm-hmm. other big dominant predators is if you were so, and you know, they're, these are global, they're widespread. If you were doing so well, why did you suddenly not do that? Why, sharks? Why? Well, this study focuses on the analysis of some shark vertebrae, two large vertebrae backbones of these sharks discovered in spain which is important because typically we don't find shark vertebrae no we usually only find their teeth you know we've gone over this in our sharks episode and 48 sure other times when we've done news but sharks have a cartilage skeleton it's soft and bendy compared to bone their teeth are typically the only calcified part of their body so it's typically the only part that fossilizes and they shed them continuously so they have lots of chances to fossilize and teeth are awesome but they don't tell you a lot about the growth rate the you know 
biochemistry of the animal. They can tell you stuff about feeding behaviors, but not much about the other aspects of how this animal survived. So we've been missing that data. Now with these vertebrae, they can take a closer look. And because of the way sharks grow, their vertebrae record ring-like records, like tree rings, of their seasonal growth and health. Handy. So now we can get an idea of how these sharks developed. And they found a few unique characteristics that could potentially answer at least part of why these sharks may have gone extinct or at least declined. One, they seem to have given live birth. So, Ooh. like you were just mentioning, viviparity. Cartilaginous fish, many of the sharks give live birth. This is a fairly common thing for sharks to do. And it seems these did as well. It also seemed that they grew very slowly. Okay. So they were not developing quickly, and they matured late. So if you think elephants kind of situation. Yeah. Or humans. Or humans instead of dogs. So these were big sharks giving live birth. It seems like they gave birth to small litters Makes sense. as well. And they grew slowly and matured late, which means slow reproduction. You're not having a lot of babies. You're not getting mature quickly. And you mature late into life. So their reproduction is very low. And that could very well be the nail in the coffin when something shifts to cause these sharks to decline. So they can't say for certain this is why, right, but right. this is an indicator of, all right, maybe this is why this dominant group in the Cretaceous died out before the big event. Right. If, you, if you're not reproducing quickly, it means that if something goes wrong, you can't recover very quickly. Yeah. And it means you would adapt slowly. Yes. Because evolution is generational. The slower you, you reproduce, the slower, in theory, on average... You're going to accumulate change. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it leaves you potentially more vulnerable when something goes wrong. And it also means that if for if any reason your population takes a hit, you don't recover from it quickly. Yeah. Uh, this is what a lot of big animals are suffering from today is if we hunt elephants for 10 years, it takes them 50 years to recover that. I don't know that that's the actual ratio, but right. you can do a little bit of damage and it takes far longer to undo it. Because unlike rabbits, they are not having babies quickly. Now, I am not a shark researcher, but I can't help but notice that the time that these sharks di disappear <laughs> is around the same time that ichthyosaurs are on the decline and disappearing. And a reason that has been, you know, supposed... Slid across the table. Put forth for why the ichthyosaurs may have declined is because that's also around the time, as we discussed in episode 51, that we see the rise of the Mosasaurs. And they do mention that these sharks also seem to have a very specialized feeding habit. Oh. So they would not have been as competitive, potentially, to new... When whale lizards Yeah, so over. like they do mention that that <laughs> feeding strategy could have also been, and if that's the case, it would make sense that something coming in that's another dominant predator might have been enough to shake things up. Yeah. They don't mention Mosasaurs directly in the study, but yeah, that makes sense to me. <laughs> I mean, I, I may be biased as a Swami <laughs> apologist, but yeah, I, I assume it was Mosasaurs. <laughs> I'm not saying it was Mosasaurs, but Mosasaurs. <laughs> Mosasaurs. Will's making the hand motion that, yes. that you know from the internet. I can't mess my hair up because I <laughs> buzzed it. I can mess my hair up. <laughs> well, my next bit of news is about a group of animals that are... Not as cool as lizards or sharks, 
though our friend Ethan would strongly disagree. <laughs> you remember him from episode 7, when we talked about primates. These are monkeys. But specifically, when and how monkeys made it to the Americas. Oh. This is research by Eric Seifert et al. in the journal Science, and we'll link to an article, another one on the conversation, by Vivian Shaw and Isabel Catherine Winder. So if you recall our conversation from episode 7, you'll remember that monkeys, right, mon- which comprise most of the familiar primates in the world today. Yeah, things with s- grabby hands and tails. Grabby hands and tails. Started in the old world. So over in Africa, Asia, Europe, that is where they got their start. But eventually moved to the new world, which is the Americas. North, South America, and all of our, you know, tiny ocean friends. And this has raised this, you know, whenever a, a group of animals arrives in a new location there's the question of how and why and when did they get there Mm -hmm. well the issue with the trip from the old world to the new world is that monkeys are thought to have made it made that trip in the early cenozoic sometime which means many many tens of millions of years after the old world and new world were separated by the atlantic ocean yes which means they could not just have walked over. Mm-hmm. Which has led, and we've discussed this in other episodes, especially in episode 7, to this suggestion of long-distance transport via rafts or something like that. That you'll get a big floating mat of vegetation that will end up going across the ocean, and if you happen to have a tiny monkey or a few monkeys on it, they could make the trip. Which sounds ridiculous, but is a thing that actually happens. Yeah, we have documented modern examples of finding wildlife washing up on beaches on this these kind of uh, natural rafts. And the general consensus is that this is not only how monkeys made it from the old world to the new world, South America and Central America particularly, but also how caviamorph rodents, a group of rodents that are typical of south central america and the americas today that's your capybaras and stuff indeed it is here this new bit of research throws a bit of a wrench into the story why would they do that a monkey wrench i guess (laughs) this research i'm on fire today strap in hour and a half (laughs) this research describes a set of teeth from peru dating to around 31.7 million years ago that are a brand new species, identified and named Eucalypithecus perdita, uh, which the article says means the lost monkey of Eucayali, which is pretty cool. And like five other sentences. And yeah, and all that <laughs> other stuff. It is one of the earliest known monkeys in the fossil record from South and Central America, which is cool. It's about the same time that we think monkeys made the, that first trip over to the New World. So it means it's one of the earliest, one of those representatives of an early dispersal event. But here's the wrench. When they compared it with other South and Central American monkeys, both living today and in the fossil record, it's not closely related to them. In fact, they identified it as belonging to a family called the the Parapithecidae, which previously have only ever been found in the Old World. This is the first member of that group that has ever been found in the New World. Its closest relatives are monkeys of a similar age from over in Egypt. Huh. What this means is, at this time, 31-ish million years ago, there were two different groups of monkeys in South and Central America. 
One, which is the group that includes all of the monkeys we have in this part of the world today, and then this one. And both of those groups, their closest relatives, are over in Africa. (laughs) Closer than they are to each other. Huh. Which suggests they made the trip twice. Yes. That those two groups rafted over from the other side of the world independently and then both set up shop in the americas and one group eventually disappeared at some point leaving the monkeys we have today which seems super weird because as you already mentioned rafting can seem far-fetched to begin with yep so the fact that it happened with two not unrelated but more distantly related groups to both end up in the same area and then both set up camp there seems even more crazy but it's not as crazy as you might think. Stay tuned for the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what's interesting about this is that typically we would think, okay, it's a rare thing to happen in the first place. Even rarer for the rafties, rafters, rafters, to end up being able to support a population when they get there. And you would imagine that if one group did it successfully, they might fill enough ecosystem space that another group wouldn't be able, mm-hmm. even if they did make it, they'd have a harder time becoming established. But it looks like the, the two different groups appear to have made it uh, around the same time. Well, when I say around the same time, within, you know, 30 to 35 million years ago, I think they say 35 to 32 is when it's estimated that the groups would have made it there. So within the span of a few million years, two different monkey groups made it over. Which is cool. Yeah. Well, then our last bit of news, I'm going to talk about Crocs. Okay. I mean, I got my squamates out of the way. Yeah. Start on a good foot, end with your best foot is how I've always heard the phrasing. Yeah. Next episode, Uh. it'll be even better. (laughs) So this is some research about adaptations made by marine Crocs uh, and how it parallels adaptations in marine mammals. Oh, boy. So this is research by Julia Schwab et al. in PNAS, and the article is in Smithsonian Mag by Teresa Matchamer. And this is looking at the Thalatosuchians, which we mentioned back in Crocs way, way back. And these were a Jurassic group of Croc cousins that fully adapted to ocean life. And many adapted so much to the point that it's thought we're not coming back onto dry land at all. Marine, truly marine crocs. Fully, fully aquatic. It's suspected they were very likely giving live birth and all sorts of stuff like that. May have been more warm than cold-blooded. Lots of cool things. They also got to very large sizes, some of them being up to 30 feet long and covered in fins and flippers. Their arms and tail had adjusted. So Dolphin crocs is what a lot of people often compare them to because dolphins are what everyone compares things to when they become streamlined. (laughs) Uh, But before dolphins, so... Shark crocs. Yes. (laughs) Well, one of the adaptations that you don't typically see is the inner ear. And we mentioned this in another news article when they were looking at marine reptiles. Mm -hmm. The inner ear has very distinct shapes for terrestrial versus aquatic animals. Because the way you move around and things you need for balance and hearing are different on land versus in water. Right. Uh, The inner ear are those loops that both function with your hearing but also have a huge 
amount a role to play in your balance and how you orient yourself. This is what makes you dizzy or not dizzy. And in different animals, we can see trends. Land animals tend to have thinner, wider, uh, like longer loops, and aquatic animals tend to have more tightly compacted and condensed inner ear vestibules, is what you'll hear them called. So they use computer tomography to study the inner ear of these marine crocs, looking at 18 extinct species and 14 modern relatives to see what trends they could find. And what they found was fairly interesting. They found three groupings of ear shape that you would expect with the, the thinner ones for the terrestrial, slightly more condensed for semi-aquatic, and then notably condensed for fully aquatic. Okay, makes sense. And this is a transition that we've seen before in whales. Ah, like in episode 41. Mm -hmm. Whales went from land to sea, and they went from terrestrial to semi to fully aquatic, and we see a similar transition in their ears. But there is a difference in the timing of these transitions. For whales, we see the miniaturization of those vestibules very quickly. Basically, as soon as they enter the water, their inner ear shrinks down. In the, in the Thalatosuchians, we see a long period of the semi-aquatic ear. Interesting. And only after they've fully adapted, gotten all their fins and features, do we see the aquatic inner ear. So while whales transition to water very quickly, going from terrestrial to aquatic with a very short semi-aquatic, Thalatosuchians had a long semi-aquatic. And so what this shows is that two groups made the same shift with very similar adaptations at a very different time rate. Interesting. Yeah. That, I guess that kind of makes sense because I, I figure if you're a croc, the one place you're pretty much guaranteed <laughs> to do well is in the semi-aquatic world. Yeah. Uh, that, that's kind of your whole Just shtick. Your bread and butter. Yeah, that, that's going to do it. I always like seeing how transitions are made differently by different groups, mm -hmm. even when they've done the same sort of transition and, and they have this convergent adaptations that they do it at different rates and different timing. It, that's always fun. There's not just one way to do a thing. Yeah. And one, I like it because research like this, I think serves as a good reminder for, I could put out a specimen of an early whale and a, you know, proto whale and a later whale. And then I could put in a terrestrial croc and a, semi-aquatic croc and a marine croc and you'd look and go yeah looks the same mm -hmm. but until you take a closer look you realize that they're you know the, the um the amount of the graph that each of those examples would take up is very different for each yeah. one well and it's a handy reminder that convergence isn't a hundred percent yeah it's not identical and there's always going to be little differences between how different groups do the same thing so that's a fun thing, a fun thing to know. Always exciting to explore secondary aquatic groups of animals. Yeah, and that's going to wrap up our news. Okay. So now we get to visit the exotic locale of Zealandia oh. after the short break. Okay, we'll be right back. New Zealand Eland. is a sovereign island country 
in the southwestern Pacific Ocean, about 2,000 kilometers or 1,200 miles east of Australia across the Tasman Sea. That's the body of water between those two. And is a notable group of islands. So the main body is made up of a northern and southern island. The North Island is the 14th largest island in the world. And the South Island is the 12th. Well, that's fun to know. So decently sized islands. And they are surrounded by about 600 smaller ones. So It's like talking about Jupiter. Yeah, like there are islands all over. And it, you know, so technically an archipelago with just two dominating islands that when you see the map, that's typically all you see. The total land area, we're looking at 268,000 square kilometers or 100 and, uh, 103,500 square miles. So not massive. Zealand, New Zealand is not a huge island like Australia, but it is big enough and has pockmarks of islands all around it and has become notable for its isolation and weirdness. Now, you may have noticed I used another term for it before the break, Zealandia. Yeah. Zealandia refers to the tectonic extent of New Zealand. So above water, we have all these islands. Below water, we have the New Zealand continent, which is what it's sometimes called. Zealandia is an area just shy of 5 million square kilometers, 2 million square miles. So a largely submerged chunk of land. Mostly underwater. It is sometimes it's been called a microcontinent or a fragment of a continent, uh, often a submerged continent. <laughs> so it's kind of a continent. Some people have described it as thus, but we so don't usually count it among our continents. Like an iceberg, New Zealand is just the tip of Zealandia. Yes, exactly. And just one more fun fact about its location way out in the ocean. New Zealand is basically at the center of the water hemisphere, which is a thing I didn't know about until looking this up, that we have the northern and southern hemisphere, but there's also the water and land hemispheres, the areas of Earth, the two halves of the globe that have the most amount of water and the most amount of land when compared to one another. And New Zealand is smack dab in the water hemisphere, the center of the land hemisphere is roughly France. Interesting. Yeah. So New Zealand is a little chunk of Earth in the middle of a vast expanse of water. Exactly. And okay. this isolation has become a key characteristic. If you look up New Zealand, basically every site is going to harp on that either excessively or at least at some point. Yeah, very because proudly. Because it, it is a, <laughs> like we've mentioned, we're doing islands again, everyone, so there's going to be some trends. <laughs> yep, like episode four. Yep. And 40. Yep. And I'm sure other times. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so like those other instances with Australia and with uh, Antarctica as well. Madagascar. Yeah, Madagascar. Island isolation tends to breed weird wildlife yep antarctica episode 11 madagascar episode 40 australia episode 50 and we talked about it in the south america episode we did episode 74 so let's take a look at this unique set of islands climate wise it's mostly temperate cool temperate in the south warm temperate in the north so not a lot of extremes of hot and cold though there are some alpine regions in the south. High up in the mountains. Yep, so big mountain range. Uh, the southern Alps runs kind of through the middle of the southern island. And so you do get some 
very cold, you know, skiing country. Throughout the rest of New Zealand, you have a mixture of forest and lowlands with tons of weird plants and animals. A lot of the plants in New Zealand are primitive, quote unquote. They're more similar to more ancient groups, so the, you know, they seem more ancestral. Uh, they have the largest type of moss oh, is found there. That's a that's a claim to fame, <laughs> right? And the largest tree ferns are also found there. So you get a lot of sort of archaic feeling groups, yeah, things that have stuck around. And among these that have stuck around, we have a lot of species, not just unique for their weirdness, but unique to New Zealand. About 82% of the plants in New Zealand are endemic, meaning they're only found there. Wow. So most, almost all the plants there, you wouldn't be able to go find anywhere else. That's cool. So they have their own set of traits that are normal for New Zealand and bizarre to us. Here's a quick list of them. Many of the shrubs are grow in a way that's called divarication, which is a twisting kind of bundled feature that scientists think may be for protection because it keeps the leaves bundled inside where they're harder to browse on and less uh, vulnerable to cold and you know freezes. Many of the plants that flower, the flowers are small and white because a lot of their pollinators, they have a limited supply since they're an island. Oh, yeah. Are things like moths and smaller native bees, lizards, and crawling insects who aren't as attracted to color as they are to scent. So you don't need pretty flowers. Oh, interesting. So just little white flowers. Most of the trees are evergreen. There are only about 11 species that are deciduous, meaning that they shed their leaves seasonally. The rest keep their leaves year-round because most of New Zealand wasn't hit as hard, they think, wasn't hit as hard during the ice ages in the northern hemisphere. So most of the trees didn't develop that cold adaptation to survive harsh winters. Interesting. So you get a lot of trees that are just leafy year-round. So fall is a lot less dramatic in New yes. Zealand. <laughs> it's a one tree, two tree. Oh, that was <laughs> lovely. Many of the trees are also dioecious, meaning that they have male and female female trees oh okay so separated sexes of tree just over 10 percent of the trees there have separate male female trees which is about twice as much as you would find in like the uk and a lot of their plants have juvenile and adult forms what the <laughs> plant ontogeny yeah plant, plant metamorphosis that they have larval trees which the article also said the mixture of these things, like the male, female, and the juvenile, make identification a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would believe it. So weird plants for a weird place, which only makes sense for you to have weird animals. Of course. Well, in a place where you can get away with it. Yep. Here, we have an unusual amount of weird animals. Around 80,000 endemic species. Wow. So just... Tons of animals only found on these group of islands. Tell me about some of them. So one of the things I love about this weird list of animals is that New Zealand has both a diversity and abundance of weird groups and also a limited amount of certain groups. Right, right. Well, we talked about that. Like Madagascar was mm -hmm. like that, where it's 
they have weird primates, but only a very limited diversity of primates. Exactly. Weird lizards, but only a few major groups of lizards and so on. So, to, for example, the lizards. There are, one source I found said 80, another said just over 100, but nearly 100 species of lizards on New Zealand. And they're all either skink or gecko. Oh, interesting. <laughs> there aren't other <laughs> kinds of lizards. They're all skink and gecko. Uh, most are skinks. About 39 of the species are gecko. And for the most part, all endemic species. Right, right. Makes sense. So you have two versions of lizard to find. <laughs> and they're... Yeah, herping's much easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did it blink or not? All right, well then, uh, there yeah. you go. The, 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 the dichotomous tree is truly dichotomous. But then there's squamates in there. We have no snakes. Yeah. No snakes on New Zealand, which... I don't know that I knew when I looked it up. Which makes it, sorry New Zealand, slightly less cool. Yeah. Just a li- just a touch. To be fair, to play on even ground, no crocs either. Yeah. I was impressed with your plants. <laughs> now I'm starting to, I don't know, starting to doubt. But we do still have cool reptiles. We are not lost, for there is the Tuatara. All right, you got me back. Yeah. All right, I'm back on board with New Zealand. Tuataras are New Zealand's largest reptile. And for anyone who is unfamiliar... I did, I did not know that. Right? <laughs> that, I mean, I guess I kind of knew that. As soon as I read it, I was like, yeah, I no, that guess. That makes sense. But I had never thought of it that way. <laughs> That's fantastic. And then we get to the massive <laughs> yeah. foot and a half. Yep. <laughs> Tuatara. The, the size of a small iguana. Yeah. <laughs> so Tuataras, for anyone who's unfamiliar, are a group of reptile very similar to squamates very similar to lizards but not squamates not lizards they are not lizards they are part of an order called rhynchocephalia which means beakheads <laughs> and most of the rhynchocephalians are sphenodontians which is what tuatars are yeah the genus sphenodon yeah tuatara. And they're the last remaining rhynchocephalian. Yeah, there is a long and diverse, diverse and very exciting and interesting fossil record mm-hmm. of rhynchocephalians. Going back 200 million years to the Triassic. Oh, no, they were doing great in like Triassic, Jurassic. Mm-hmm. Today, we have one type that yeah. I think there are, I'm sure you're going to say this, two species question mark? Two species question mark indeed. Yeah, and I, and I meant it that way. I didn't yeah. mean two species, right? Well, I meant two species, question mark. So there is currently, as far as what I was able to find, one species, Sphenodon punctatus, or the northern Tuatara. It got that northern name when, in 1989, the second species, Sphenodon guntheri, was discovered. And then in 2009, they said no that it's really just, it's better described as just one species. So now some will call it two subspecies. So it'll be both Sphenodon punctatus, and then northern is punctatus punctatus, and southern, or the brother island to Atari, because it's only found on one island, is punctatus guntheri. So two species question mark. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Like I said. So these reptiles, like I said, are not huge, about half a meter. And... Feed mostly on small invertebrates, small animals, eggs, like seabird eggs, smaller lizards, and sometimes smaller tuatara. Mostly nocturnal, and though very lizard-looking, and still share a lot of things with lizards, like they shed and they have lots of anatomy things because they are cousins to squamates. They have weird things too. 
the most notable being a beak-like structure of their premaxilla, so the front of their upper jaw, the teeth have fused into like a beak, which is characteristic of rhynchocephalia. Yeah, they have this like buck tooth thing yeah. going on up there. They're also bizarre for reptiles. They don't particularly like warm weather. Like they don't survive well above 25 degrees Celsius or 77 degrees Fahrenheit. And they can live at in temperatures as low as 5 degrees Celsius or 41 degrees Fahrenheit by burrowing. So they like colder weather. They're also very slow developmentally. They have slow metabolism. They mature slowly. But when they analyze, did some DNA analysis, it shows that they actually evolve remarkably fast with their molecular evolution being one of the fastest observed invertebrates. Interesting. Weird reptiles. They're very strange <laughs> reptiles. So you have these bizarre not lizards. And then you have frogs. So there is one indigenous genus of frog, the Leopelma, which are often just called the New Zealand frogs. That they makes sense. That's what you got. Endemic. And there are four species. That's weird. It's so weird. You got the <laughs> archers, the Hamiltons, the Hotch setters, and the Maud Island frog. And these are often described as being very primitive frogs. And they've got weird features y'all ready to hear about some weird frogs tell me about weird frogs they have no external eardrum they have round eyes not slit you know they don't have kermit eyes mm -hmm. <laughs> they for the most part don't croak or at least not regularly uh, they don't croak regularly like other frogs you'd expect and most of them skip the tadpole phase <laughs> <laughs> so in episode 81 we talked about metamorphosis and how frogs are real good at it. Yep. And they have a larval tadpole face. Yep. These decided to get even gooder at it and just skip that. So New Zealand is a <laughs> is a strange land where the frogs don't metamorphose, but the plants do. Yes. <laughs> what a weird place. <laughs> so what happens here is that a lot of the frogs go through the majority of the tadpole phase in the egg. Oh, okay. Interesting. And then hatch as froglets. So they with... have very early metamorphosis yes a pre-hatching metamorphosis and then they hatch with sometimes still the remnant of a tail from the pictures i could find but functioning legs so they are a functional frog and some of the adult frogs even care for the young carrying them around on their backs and stuff oh that's cool so weird frogs weird also frogs extremely endangered frogs i uh, it's an island as we discussed in episode four and it's today, as we discussed in episode 55. And yes, there are people there. <laughs> and yes, and humans live on the same planet as they do. And speaking of things that come in pairs, mammals. Okay. There are two native ones. Two whole mammals. And both are bats. I, I Yeah, if I, if I was going to guess. <laughs> yep. We do have native marine mammals. There's seals and dolphins. Okay. Uh, but as for land mammals, there are only bats before humans arrived. And you have the long-tailed and short-tailed. There was the greater short-tailed, but that's thought to be extinct now. Oh. Yeah. It's 30% of their bats. Yep. <laughs> Just gone. And that's, there we go. That's mammals. Okay, moving on. And so, <laughs> hope you enjoyed that. Well, and we talked about islands, and then also we did bats in episode mm -hmm. 59. One of the things that makes bats unique among mammals is that they are able to get places that yeah. other mammals can't. They've got the bird advantage is that the ocean's only so much of a barrier. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they don't have to raft. 
And finally, I want to mention one last uh, animal, one of the most famous weird animals of New Zealand, the weta. An invertebrate? Yeah. What's a weta? Wettas are giant flightless crickets. They are not wholly endemic to New Zealand. There are wettas found in other places, but basically every genus of weta on New Zealand is endemic to New Zealand. Okay. So the ones you find there, you won't find anywhere else. Wettas are a group within the orthopterans, so crickets, grasshoppers. They are flightless, typically larger cousins of the crickets. There are two families found on New Zealand, and typically they're split into five broad groups. The ground, giant, tusked, and tree are both found in the first family, and then cave wettas make up our other family. Okay. They're diverse. They're weird. The tusked ones have big tusks and like are often predatory. But the tree weta and the giant weta are some of the heaviest insects on the planet today. Oh, that's fun. The adult tree weta is, according to most common measurements, the world's heaviest adult insect at two and a half ounces. <laughs> so a uh, uh, heifer. A hefter. Yep. Like, lift those and you'll get buff. <laughs> you if you're a tiny New Zealand frog. <laughs> and that is a, a small taste. There's more weird stuff. But oh, yeah. I'm sure there's someone out there. You didn't say my favorite. I, we know. I didn't Apologies. say a lot of the things. Send it to us. Now, Will, <laughs> I can't help but notice that we talked about mammals and reptiles and amphibians and, and even insects. Yeah. You haven't mentioned... I, I've heard there's a couple of interesting birds on New Zealand. Oh, uh, oh, can, do you want to talk about those? Are you, I mean, are there any to mention? I guess if you're interested, we will mention those at the end of the episode because that needs an entire section to itself. <laughs> birds of New Zealand in a bit. Like, literally, if I were to work it in now, we'd be taking our middle break at the end of the episode. <laughs> so... We're going to get to the birds, but I want to give you the background of New Zealand first because the birds are work into that in a lot of ways. So if you understand the history, it'll be nicer when we talk about the birds. Okay. Okay. So now let's start to look at the history of New Zealand. How did it get to be the way it is today? The basement rocks, the, the core of New Zealand, of Zealandia, date between the Cambrian to Cretaceous at different areas of New Zealand. So some very old rocks, some more recent rocks. Most of it was formed in a marine environment before it separated from Gondwana, the southern supercontinent. Hey, we've talked about that. Yeah. Gondwana was that amalgamation of what is today, South America, Australia, Antarctica, Africa, and New Zealand was a chunk of that. Yes, it was the southern portion of Pangaea when Pangaea split. Yep, and it was around even before that. Mm -hmm. Gondwana predates Pangaea. Yeah, it smashed in and then came back off, yep. which is cool. Yeah. And as we move forward in time, we're going to come into the latest Cretaceous. At about 90 million years, we see Australia and New Zealand together, and the Australia Zealandia separate from Antarctica. And about 85, Zealandia is slowly pulling away from Australia. And the split starts in the south and moves north as the Tasman Sea opens up. Okay, so this is at the very end of the Mesozoic, yes. the age of reptiles and such. And it's mostly considered that by about 75 million years ago, so just before the end of the Cretaceous, we've got just 10 million years left, Zealandia had essentially separated from Australia. 
So it was now off on its own. How exactly separate it was is unsure. Uh, the area very likely was surrounded by shallow oceans. So exactly how completely isolated it was is unsure. But we do know that dinosaurs continued to survive on New Zealand during this time of almost or partial or complete isolation. Okay, so dinosaurs were, were popular all across Gondwana, mm-hmm. and that's why we see some similarities on, the, on those continental, those different continents' dinosaur faunas. So some rode New Zealand away. Exactly. They, <laughs> they rode it off, and we don't know a lot about them. The okay. fossil record there is not great. In fact, for a while, it was partially or potentially believed that dinosaurs did not survive on New Zealand. That it was not big enough to support notable populations and that they were lacking uh, up until about 1975. So like Whew. for a while, it was kind of thought maybe they just weren't here, but remains have been found. Uh, specifically, there are two famous instances you'll see cited for New Zealand dinosaurs. The Mangohuanga stream, which is a, or dinosaur stream, which is a small stream that dates back about 65 million years ago from the latest, latest Cretaceous that has Mesozoic reptile remains. Some dinosaurs, so we have things like Ankylosaur and a theropod of some sort and a Titanosaur, so a big sauropod. And then we also have Mosasaur material, Plesiosaur material, and Pterosaur material. Okay, so dinosaurs as well as some of the other famous Mesozoic reptiles. Yeah. And I, that's what I could find when I looked it up. I didn't find names. I found, yes, we have some of these. <laughs> they were here. They were here. And then there is a trackway, a sauropod trackway that dates about 70 million years ago that is found in about six places over a stretch of about 10 kilometers. And that's another one where, yep, sauropods, we're here. So not a lot to say on those dinosaurs. but they were there this point in time is also notable because of what we mentioned earlier about there not being native mammals or at least seeming not to be any native mammals because what that entails or what that suggests is it means neither marsupials nor placentals made it to australia in time to hop onto new zealand before it split oh interesting so it gives us a little idea of the movement they're, they were not able to make this jump before it split off. But ratites, to give you just a moment, ratites are our flightless birds we'll mention later. They had evolved by now, so they may have been here by this point, but okay. we're not sure. So the early cousins of ostriches, emus. Yes. So we are maybe seeing some of the early New Zealand fauna that's famous now, but it's partially unsure. Right. So sir, some things were already there to drift away yes. with New Zealand. But how many of the things we see nowadays is less sure. Right, right. And by the end of the Cretaceous, 65 million years ago, it is generally accepted that New Zealand was a fully isolated island. Uh, it, had, it had successfully seceded from Australia. And has been so for the last 65 million years. The whole of the Cenozoic. Yeah, so... At this point, we now are isolated off the side, but we're not quite the New Zealand we know yet. It's still, it's not going to look the same. It's not shaped the same. As we enter the Cenozoic and get into the Paleocene, we see that the we see that New Zealand is continuing 
to move away from Australia and the other land masses. I guess technically toward the <laughs> the ones on the other side of the world. But yeah, it's, it's, it's also <laughs> moving toward land masses. Away from its neighbors. To It's moving as far as it possibly can away from continents. Yes. And then about 40 million years ago, it locks together with the with Australia, the Zealandia plate and Australia plate locked together to form the Australian plate, which meets up with the Pacific plate. And that conjunction kind of crushed and smushed New Zealand a bit to form the Alpine Fault through the Southern Island, which okay. will eventually become the Southern Alps. Right, right. So this is the, the baby steps toward their mountain range. During this time, it was largely covered in shallow seas, and the low-lying lands were heavily swamps, and many of these swamps are now preserved as coal seams through those areas of New Zealand. So, still warm, a little cooler than when we left the Cretaceous, and then things get weird when we enter the Oligocene, where... New Zealand reaches its maximum submersion. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Zealandia is almost entirely underwater at this point. Marine sediment is the most common Oligocene sediment. Terrestrial sediment is very rare, so not much is being deposited above water. And some have suggested there's actually a active debate going on as to whether or not Zealandia was completely submerged during this time. Now, the research suggests no, for the most part, because if it were submerged, that means all terrestrial life would have to have restarted after the Oligocene with new arrivals. Right, right. And that's not what molecular data seems to suggest. No, I, I wouldn't think so. The lineages, there are many lineages that seem to have survived the Oligocene quite handily. We don't see any major spikes in extinction or rises in new arrivals after the Oligocene. We do see some bottlenecks during this time, showing that the land mass is decreasing. Right, and populations shrink. But during this time, it would have consisted of mostly of low-lying islands with very small habitats speckled throughout. But by the end of this time, our north and south have separated. And uh, after the Oligocene, sea levels lower and the land rises, and we have New Zealand. As we know it. As we know it. Proper New Zealand. Yes, so with that, we'll take a break here and talk next about what's the more recent history of New Zealand. How did it come to have the, the things on it we expect it to have? So as we enter the Miocene about 23 million years ago and going through the Pliocene, we find some of New Zealand's most famous fossil sites. Okay. So we're starting to see some notable, more recent, more iconic fossil demographics showing up. So this is a time where global temperatures are cooling, grasslands mm -hmm. are spreading, and the world is starting to look like today. Exactly. And New Zealand is starting to look more like itself as the Alpine Fault is slowly turned into the Southern Alps through major uplifting events. Oh, fun. So mountains are rising, lots of uplifting happening, we're coming out of the water, and there are a few fossil sites that preserve really interesting habitats. Folden Mar 
is one site that is a lake fossil deposit, preserving things like fish and arthropods and plants, even fungi, dating back toward the beginning of the Miocene. And a mar, or a mar diatreme, or diatreme volcano, is a, a volcanic pipe formed when gas explodes. Oh. And this is one of the only of its kind in the southern hemisphere. So it's a cool geological site and preserves a lot of fossils. And data from the pollen suggests a fairly warm, temperate, or subtropical forest. Okay. Rainforest, even, at this time. So... Giving you an idea of what at least a portion of New Zealand is looking like. As far as what its more iconic wildlife looks like, we go to the St. Bothans fauna. And no, many of them didn't die to bring you this information. This has a detailed record. This is one of the ones that you see cited all the time for the terrestrial life during the Miocene. It dates between 19 to 16 million years old. And there are some notable bird fossils, which we'll talk about. In just a little bit. Okay. <laughs> but there's also some weird fossils of animal groups that are no longer found on New Zealand at all. Oh. One is that there were, at least at one point, crocs. Oh, cool. Mekosukian crocs were on the island. This one, at least, so one member got to be at least three meters long. So, you know, you're looking at a 10-foot croc there. Good-sized croc. But they are no longer there because it's too cold, mostly. Not a lot of places in the world where crocs have just up and left completely. Yeah. And the other thing you have here is the uh, St. Bothan's mammal. <laughs> I love it. Yep. That's the name I was able to find for it. And it was a terrestrial <laughs> mammal that was not a bat. So. Oh, interesting. At one point. Something made it there. There were mammals there. Maybe it took a raft. So what it is, is some archaic non-placental non-marsupial mammal <gasps> yeah oh that's cool yeah so this is not one of the two major groups nowadays this was something they're not positive what from what i could see that may have come from a lineage predating that split even yeah yeah a very ancient group of mammals so this could have been something that rode new zealand across we don't see any placental or marsupials this isn't either of those and if it goes back to before the split, that's 125 million years ago. Which means that we're missing 100 plus million years of whatever this thing is yep. on New Zealand. So this suggests what one article called it, ghost lineages. At yep. least one, possibly more. And one of them, according to this specimen, survived from the early Cretaceous to the Miocene. One lineage was on New Zealand for that much time. That we know almost nothing about and there's no modern representation of. Very cool. So yeah, when I was saying there's no terrestrial mammals except bats, well, kind of. Right, except for this one. <laughs> except for this one, St. Bothan's mammal. <laughs> you get, there were some things there that aren't, you know, so it was not New Zealand the way we see it nowadays the whole time. There were some more recognizable kind of groups there that now have disappeared, leaving it bereft <laughs> of those lineages i like that even new zealand's familiar stuff was weird stuff yes yeah <laughs> it's, it's it's all right we'll do it but we'll do it our way and then we're getting very close into the modern day we entered the pleistocene which is going to bring us into the ice age and things are getting cold we see glaciation on new zealand but not as extreme as mentioned in the northern hemisphere 
Right, right. I assume in the mountains. Yes. The Alps get hit very heavily, and there are three major geological records from the Pleistocene to basically today. The last glacial maximum, and then a transitional period from about eighteen to 11,000 years ago, and then everything after that is from then to today. Right. And you can see those sections and once we've gotten through that we are getting into the modern day where new zealand is new zealand until people arrive right and then it's new zealand plus people yep and minus a lot of other things yeah so somewhere between about 950 to 1150 ad the first polynesians polynesian settlers arrived on new zealand mammals again mammals so now there's mammals uh, these are going to be the Maori, uh, the or the ancestors of the Maori people who are still on New Zealand. Right, New Zealand's native peoples. Exactly. These first settlers actually started the trend. It was not. Uh, it did not start with the European settlers later on. The trend of invasive species because the Polynesian rat came over with them. Ah, and yep, that'll do it. Immediately started to wipe out numbers of small birds, frogs, and lizards. Yeah, and that's not, we should mention, that's not unique to New Zealand's native nope. people. Most groups of native peoples, we think of it as being, uh, we brought them over on our big trade exactly. ships and stuff. But no, humans have been introducing plants and animals for as long as we've been traveling to places. Yes, and that's exactly why I wanted to mention is it's not yep. that like the Polynesians did it specifically, but... Anytime people get on boats, it's usually not great for the wildlife for their landing. Nope. Doesn't matter whether you have gunpowder or not. <laughs> <laughs> like, doesn't matter what what level you're at. Can something else ride in the boat that's not you? Well, it probably is. <laughs> yeah. It's, and even if you're not carrying crops and yep. you, you, intentional domesticants. Yes. So we have now, we have humans, and then... At 1769, Captain Cook lands on New Zealand. And so, the, now we, so now we have Europeans. The first European to set foot there. And then by the mid-1800s, Europeans have began to settle New Zealand. Okay. And so then from that time on, it is basically populated the way we see it today. I like to imagine that that last 20,000 years of history is a series of that inception movie trailer <laughs> bomb noise at increasing intensities yeah. where it's the last glacial maximum the first humans the first european humans <laughs> and it's just not a great time for new zealand there's a link that will be in the blog post that goes through the history year by year and it does the ancient history into the modern and when you get, start getting into the you know the dates we recognize 1839 and da 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 it's just from there on, it's, and the last of this animal died. And someone's cat killed the last of one of these birds. Yeah. And <laughs> until you get toward like the bottom half dozen where it starts to be, and then we started to establish protection laws and right. <laughs> nature preserves. <laughs> but New Zealand took a hit when people arrived. Yeah, it's been a rough millennium for New Zealand. So there's still a lot of weird animals there now, but there were whole ecosystems that matched niche for niche what you'd expect to find on most other continents but almost all the major roles were being played by birds oh remember those birds i mentioned earlier let's talk about birds i hear it's the word 
birds in New Zealand is kind of their thing. <laughs> it is known as the seabird capital of the world. Cool. And due to the lack of big mammals, birds filled all of the traditional roles we'd expect mammals to have filled after the KPG extinction at the end of the Mesozoic. We've talked about this in episode four on an island evolution. Mm-hmm. We talked about this and we've talked about it elsewhere that when you have an island and other animals are not present, oftentimes you'll get birds who become flightless, who become grazers, who become top predators, things like that. New Zealand is a place where that's been what's been going on since the Cretaceous. Yeah, where birds didn't do one or two of those. They did all of them. It's a the world of birds. Large herbivore niche is a bird. The large predator niche is a bird. The small forager niche is a bird. <laughs> yeah. The megafaunal herbivore yeah. is a bird. Yeah, like all of your big, typically mammal roles were birds here. So let's look at some of these birds because, oh my gosh, New Zealand <laughs> birds are so cool. I freaked out the entire time I was taking notes. Now, we're talking about New Zealand. We need to start with the paleognaths. Paleognaths are a group of birds that have five modern extant branches of mostly flightless lineages. Your ratites, your cassowary, your emu, your ostrich, your rhea, and a couple of birds here. And then we do have one flighted, which is your tinamous in South America. The two paleognaths in New Zealand are the moa and the kiwi. The kiwi's still around, the moas sadly are not. So the moa, probably one of the most charismatic of all New Zealand fossil animals. And and possibly among the most famous birds yeah. ever. Moas were a group of flightless, very ostrich or emu-like, long-necked, long-legged birds. Very large birds. Very large birds. They survived from late Miocene up until about the 1500s. Yep. <laughs> Almost to today. Yep. Like, so ridiculously close. The order uh, that moas fall into are the, the dinornithiforms, which are split mainly into the lesser moas, which most of the species, and the greater moas, which are some of the really big ones. Yeah. Some of the largest birds ever. And when we say large birds, we mean up to three meters or 10 feet tall and weighing up to 250 kilograms, which is about 550 pounds. So when I said megafaunal herbivores, <laughs> yeah. megafaunal birds. And then the smaller ones range down to the size of like a turkey. So, which is still a good size still, for a bird. Still not a small bird, <laughs> but they were diverse. They had huge and smaller. Yeah, the big ones are the famous ones you think about, but no, there were mini moas. And they were the main herbivores the main browsers and grazers on new zealand for a chunk of time for the last 20 million years they ate all manner of plant which they would then grind up with at least in some of them up to three kilograms or six and a half pounds of stones that would be in their gizzard oh (laughs) wow yeah almost seven pounds of your 500 pound bird are rocks cat worth of rocks (laughs) grinding up food in their gizzard as with a lot of your other big terrestrial birds, they laid one large egg, which could be up to 18 centimeters or seven inches in diameter. <laughs> and up to 25 centimeters or 10 inches long. Making them not only uh, among the largest dinosaur eggs, 
but among the largest eggs. Eggs. Eggs, ever. We do see some things similar with them in other big herbivores. Growth rings in the bones show that they matured slowly, taking as many as 10 years to get to their full size versus most other birds, which is like a year. Yeah, no, 10 years is quite something for birds. That's a lot of years. We also know that they were hunted by the Maori, the early settlers of New Zealand. And they had a very close relationship with these birds. Like we know that they were eating them for meat, but we also see tools made out of their bones, like fish hooks and spear tips and stuff like that. And eggshells used to like carry water and carry things. Oh, that's interesting. So very tight relationship. So for New Zealand, they are the way that we depict Native Americans using bison. Yes. Yeah. These were your bison. Exactly. And so huge part of of their of, of you know the humans early diet there and from what we can tell by the 1500s the last moa had disappeared and according to the research it was 100% because of people yeah well because they were new zealand's bison yes yeah this is so when it comes to megafaunal extinctions, we've discussed before that there's often a debate between climate and people. Yep. Episode 25. The research is not muddled here. No. Most of the big birds we're about to mention went away because of us. Humans did it. 100% because of us. They weren't on the decline. They were actually doing quite well. Left alone for 65 million years. Yeah. But they are, what's the phrase? They are survived by their cousins, the kiwi. Yeah, much less tasty. Much less tasty, a lot less meat. <laughs> the kiwi is another ratite bird that is flightless and today probably the most famous New Zealand animal, considering that the people of New Zealand are called kiwis. Yeah. <laughs> There's these little round... Small, with two powerful legs, with almost not wings. Their wings can be about an inch or three centimeters long. Uh, very, very small. So effectively no wings, long build, very furry feathered birds. That They're like little hairy coconuts. Yeah, little hairy coconuts and moderate in size. There, there are a few species, ranges of size, but most of them don't get much bigger than, I think about a foot long was one of the averages I saw. So not super big, uh, not itty bitty, not a finch. Like a chicken size. Yeah, a chicken. Or so. And on the tip of its wings, there is a small, according to the description I've read, cat-like claw on the tip of the wing that seems to be non-functional. So we're talking about really weird birds. That's a very strange bird. Let's continue down their list of weird stuff. (laughs) So we talked about their strong, they have two legs that they run around on like you would do if you were a flightless bird that are very powerful. They can burrow with those legs. They dig out holes where they live. They can. It, one thing I read said that they can tear open logs to get at insects. Wow. Like old rotten logs. So powerful little legs with four toes instead of your typical... That's too many toes. Yeah. <laughs> two to three for most of your other ratites. Yeah. They also have particularly thick and tough skin and heavy marrow-filled bones instead of the thin skin and lighter bones that you would expect in most birds makes sense the feathers like i said are more hair-like than feathery they're bushy and loose and there are modified feathers on the face that seem to serve as whiskers oh yeah so they have whisker feathers (laughs) sensory feathers a relatively low body temperature for birds being around 
100 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius, which is closer to mammals, what you would expect from mammals than birds. Okay. And a highly developed sense of smell, which is not something you hear about in most birds. No. And they're the only bird with nostril with their nostrils at the end of the beak. Oh, that's right. And Usually they s- they're up by the eyes. Exactly. They have it down toward the end like a straw that they sniff out their prey, which is mostly grubs and worms and bugs and things like that. And they'll stick it into the dirt. And if they get dirt stuck in it, they'll just sneeze it out. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the bird's version of like a a vole. Yeah, very. That's it's a little burrowy, diggy, foragey bird. Yeah, it's, it's a weird little terrestrial bird. With big eggs compared to its size, a female kiwi can lay up to six eggs in a year, and one of those eggs might account for up to 20% of her total weight. Yeah, I've seen though those images, uh, just, you know, like an x-ray of yeah. a kiwi with an egg inside, and it is like a Russian nesting doll. Mm-hmm. You have a bird, and then a huge chunk of its inside is egg. The average weight for a kiwi is between two to eight pounds so in that range if you were to take the size of their egg according to t- typical bird ratios they should be about 30 pounds <laughs> like a 30 pound bird would normally lay eggs this size. yes <laughs> now both of these birds are very characteristic of new zealand and they both have a notable history at new zealand we go back to our saint bothans fauna that we mentioned that i mentioned earlier because both moa and kiwi were found at the site. So this is early Miocene? This is going back to the Miocene. Uh, yeah, not quite to the beginning, but earlier Miocene. There are moas there that are already decently sized. And there's at least two species. So moas were already moas during this time. There are kiwi fossils there from a fossil kiwi known as Proapteryx, which is not like today's kiwis. So this was much smaller, more gracile, so thin-limbed and long-limbed compared to the days. Shorter bill, and its slender limbs are more in proportion with flying birds than terrestrial ones, which suggests that this was likely a flighted kiwi. Ooh, that's cool. Which suggests that kiwis did not ride New Zealand over necessarily, but immigrated there. After it was isolated. They flew there and then became Kiwis as we know. And this is an important note because for a long, long time, Moas and Kiwis were thought to be closest cousins to each other because they're the two ratites on this isolated island. Makes sense. Obviously, they must be buddies. And according to DNA evidence, that's not the case. DNA evidence shows that the Kiwi is actually more closely related to Madagascar's elephant birds than to the Moa. And that the Moa's closest cousin is the Tinamouse from South America. It's the little small partridge-like bird that can fly, but is in the overall group that ratites are in. Right, right. So like those two groups of monkeys that yep. we talked about in the news, Moas and Kiwis are two different groups of birds that made it to New Zealand independently. And this, along with other research into the, the ratite dispersal, and the DNA relations seems to suggest that New Zealand was actually likely colonized multiple times by different groups of ratites, the Moas and the Kiwis, who both flew there and then lost flight. Cool. That ratite flightlessness is not something that 
evolved first and then they spread everywhere and rode the continents away, but that they probably, at least some of them, flew and then convergently evolved into flightless birds. Makes sense with the timeline of the splitting of New Zealand as well. And this is also important because when I mentioned the beginning that the isolation of New Zealand has been one of their most characteristic things, it's often been assumed that that's what caused all the weird animals because we've been isolated since the Cretaceous. But when you look at the genetic lineages of a lot of the animals, it shows that many of them probably are more recent arrivals after isolation and that their diversification was fairly quickly. So it's not the 65 million years of isolation. It's within, you know, here, 20 million years. Right. Things kept going there and getting weird. Yes. So once again, that situation ended up with the same answer, but a very different timeline than what was assumed. Now, one of the other cool things about the formation, the fauna there, is that the moas found there had some damage on the bones from potential predation. Uh, So it's believed that this site was a swamp where some of these animals were getting stuck. And one of the damages is definitely from a group of eagles, formerly called the Harpagornis eagles, but now are the the Hiraetis eagles, or Hust's eagles. I have heard of those. Which consist of the biggest eagle ever. Living alongside some of the biggest herbivorous birds ever. Yes, so we have our big herbivore, now we have our mega predator. Host eagles could grow up to total lengths of four and a half feet long with females. Females got bigger, uh, which is 1.4 meters. With weights of 10 to 15 kilograms or 20 to 30 pounds and wingspans of two and a half meters or roughly eight and a half feet. And for the biggest ones, potentially three meters. So just under 10 feet. And these are not, like the moas and such, giant flightless birds. No. This is a giant flying bird. These were eagles. A 30-pound <laughs> flying bird of prey. And taking down things like moas, we know that for certain because we have direct damage on the bones. Using talons that could be up to the size of a tiger claw. <laughs> and they were the dominant predator. Found only on the South Island, but that's the bigger of the two islands, so still on most of New Zealand. These eagles dominated as predators up until 1400s. What happened in the 1400s? Uh, the moas went away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oops. Yep. And that's what they think happened, is that you lost their main prey, and as big predators, they started to decline as well. It also didn't help that we brought lots of animals that started to eat their eggs and Right, right. And probably like compete with them for yeah. other food sources. So people arrived, and their bison were giant birds, mm-hmm. and their wolves and mountain lions were also giant birds. Yep. <laughs> Do you remember how I said the only other native mammals were marine mammals? Yes. Another weird bird that's found here is an early penguin. The Weimanu is a penguin from about 60 million years ago. Oh, I have heard of this penguin. Yeah. That is what the one article I found deemed a proto-penguin because it's about the size of today's yellow-eyed penguins, so one of the more smaller-sized penguins, but... Looks a bit more like a cormorant. Snake neck birds, which are close cousins of anhingas. Longer neck, longer tail, 
less standing upright more likely, but still with dense compact wings for swimming, flying underwater. So an early proto-penguin used to be here. So lots of weird birds that mostly aren't there anymore. But that's not to say they don't still have weird birds. I have to talk about the New Zealand parrots. Yeah, of course you do. Because the New Zealand parrots, people, these parrots are so cool. They are all in the superfamily Strigopoidae. All extant species are endemic to New Zealand, and they are grouped into the nesters, the genus Nestor, which has the caca, uh, which there are various species of the caca, smaller, uh, medium-sized parrot. The kia, which I'll talk about more in just a bit. You have genus Strigops, which has the famous kakapo, and then two fossil lineages. One, which is almost surely part of this group, the Nelepsiticus, which is close relative of genus Nestor. It has four species within it. Early Miocene parrot, likely flightless with a robust beak. So very similar to the, like, the flightless kakapo that we're going to talk about. The other fossil group is genus Heracles. Heracles and Expectatus. I think we talked about this in a news yeah, at some point. Yeah, we sure did. The name comes from Hercules. Yeah. Heracles being the original version of his name. And the unexpected nature of the discovery, because this is the biggest parrot ever. Yeah, a giant flightless parrot. A three foot tall parrot. Ooh. Meter tall. That likely weighed up to seven kilograms or 15 pounds. That's a lot of parrot. That's a lot of parrot. <laughs> it was almost certainly flightless with a big, powerful beak that it likely used to tear into foliage. Now, we don't have that giant parrot anymore, but we still do have the biggest living parrot <laughs> on New Zealand today, the kakapo. The kakapo. The kakapo is the heaviest living parrot. It is a flightless parrot. So walking around on the forest floor, it's nocturnal. It typically is going to measure between around 60 centimeters uh, which is roughly 24 25 inches long and weigh one to four kilograms or two to nine pounds so not quite heracles sized but, but you yeah. know, who is but still a hefty parrot it is entirely herbivorous eating all sorts of plants and even sometimes the sapwood of trees and it doesn't have a gizzard the size you would expect it to be it has a very small gizzard compared to other birds, its size at least, and its beak is adapted to grind the food. Oh, okay. So yeah. it doesn't need the gizzard grinding stone thing. It's chewing. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> grinding with its beak. They also are very noisy. The males make big booming, boom, boom, that sound throughout their uh, elevated range and wheezing noises to attract mates. And they are extremely critically endangered with about 154 individuals known to exist on june 2017 Ooh. all of which now carry, carry radio transmitters so as wow. far as the the sites i was seeing the cockapos we know of we are tracking yeah we all of them that's how few there are <laughs> it's real bad so let's end on a nicer note for a bird that's doing slightly better the kia this is a more normal looking parrot it's flighted it's moderate size so like 48 centimeters, 19 inches long, and 800 grams uh, to one kilogram. So 
just above or below two pounds. So not a small bird, but not a huge bird. But it is the world's only alpine parrot. So mountain-dwelling parrot. A mountain parrot. And things only get weirder from there. (laughs) The Kia is known to be very smart. Very playful. Uh, They're the ones that you may have seen videos of them breaking into people's cars and parking lots. Yeah. And like stealing things from their luggage on the roof. Uh, They're very, they they make toys out of everything, but they also tend to destroy whatever they make a toy. Because as we discussed in our patron mini episode compilation, as we uh, concluded in our discussion, parrots are the primates of birds. Yes. And these, in some of the scarier aspects of primates, (laughs) they have an omnivorous diet. Which is not something you typically expect with parrots. No. Nope. You know, parrots are very often herbivorous. Well, they have those seed cracking mm-hmm. beaks. And these still eat, you know, mainly plants and stuff, but they have been known to feed on carrion and go raid nests of skuas that dig their nests in the hillside. They will pull open the dirt plug and eat the eggs. I and mean, then when they hatch, eat the chicks. If you have a beak that's good for cracking seeds and nuts, It'll also crack an egg. Yep, it's and also a skull, <laughs> and it's also great for attacking sheep. <laughs> oh, I mean, if you have the tool. Yeah, sheep attacks have been something for like the last hundred years. Farmers have been blaming on the kia due to wounds on the flanks, the back and the hip area of the sheep. So when I said that the host eagle, yeah, were the wolves and mountain lions, yep. I was wrong. Yes, <laughs> yes, I. Listen, if you're going to bring all these domesticants and start wiping out the (laughs) native wildlife, you can't complain when the native wildlife starts biting back. Yep. So these attacks on sheep were being blamed on the Kia. But everyone was kind of like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, the the parrots. Sure, Dave. (laughs) Finally, in a fairly recent documentary, which I will link you to in the blog, you can watch the entire documentary about the Kias. They got night vision footage of the Kias attacking the sheep because they're mostly nocturnal parrots. Mostly. Mostly. And the parrot just perches on the back of the sheep where the sheep can't do anything about it and digs into the stores of fat on their hips. Uh, it's like the um, the the birds that hang out on rhinos. Yes. That for a long time people were like, oh, look, they're eating the ticks and the parasites off the rhinos. And nope. They're vampires. Well, I think they are also doing that. Oh, yeah. But they're eating anything edible, including the rhino. Yep. <laughs> this, these attacks often result in the death of the sheep, not because the Kia kills it, but because they leave an open, infectious wound. Yep. So farmers hated the Kia. And for the last century have been trying to wipe them out and killed about 1,500 Kia. Oh. Up until 1986 when they were finally protected. And nowadays, most of the farmers work with that. But this is like a super weird behavior. And no one's quite sure why it happens because not all Kia seem to do it. It's not universal. Some groups do, some don't. Some individuals do, some don't. But it's... Seems bizarre, especially for a parrot, until we go back to the St. Bothans Formation. Oh, I've heard of that place. Where on the Moa, there were some markings around the hip area. I was so hoping. Similar to where the Kias attacked the sheep. I was going to say. Yep. <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder if this is a thing that the, the Kias have learned to do because they're mischievous mm-hmm. uh, monkey birds. Or 
I wonder what they used to chew on. Yeah. <laughs> and do you know what other birds found at St. Bothans? What else? Kia. Yeah. They are also fossilized there. Now, were they the ones attacking those moas? That's not certain. Right. This has been a very, like, speculatively suggested with this bit of kind of decent, kind of circumstantial evidence. But if this is not a new learned behavior, it may be an ancient behavior that they are now reapplying to new herbivores that we've introduced. Wow. I love the Kias. (laughs) We didn't know what we were getting into. It's so... (laughs) New Zealand parrots. I love them. Their birds are so cool. New Zealand's got a lot of cool birds. And that's about going to wrap up our discussion of New Zealand. It's a lot of good New Zealand stuff. It's New Zealand is one of the most uniquely bizarre places on the planet. Because, like, Australia is weird. Because what? Your mammals aren't like our mammals. Right. And New Zealand goes, what are mammals? Yeah, what your mammals aren't. Do you mean the other furry birds that can fly? <laughs> yeah, do, you, do you mean our fuzz birds? Yeah, the big-eared birds. The flying ones? Th- those are mammals? <laughs> I thought I, those were just other kiwi. <laughs> I love the thought that a hypothetical New Zealand creature yes. would then go to another continent and they'd be like wait your furry things don't fly your feathered things fly (laughs) yeah yeah exactly well they'd get there and they'd be like these are the weirdest looking kiwis i've ever seen they pick up a tadpole and go what is this (laughs) oh well frogs frogs have an early stage that doesn't look like a frog like a tree and then no (laughs) no what the frogs cover their baby froglet eyes (laughs) (laughs) (gasps) that's horrific that's a fetus (laughs) What a what a strange strange place it is. Yeah, I love it. Oh, uh, well, as always, there's so much to talk about, and there are so many things I had to cut out. There's lots of other there's other cool flightless birds. Like I had to cut my list oh, yeah. down. There's tons of birds. There's the flightless duck. Uh, like it's all super weird, and it's all wonderful. So if you want to hear more about any specific part, let us know. As always, we accept requests. We will be happy to revisit topics and dive deeper in as long as we know you want us to. Of course. Now, before we end the episode, one last section. If you remember that Patreon we talked about, one of the other benefits patrons at certain levels get is they can ask us questions that we will read aloud and then answer on the podcast episode. David, would you like to read this question? I sure would. This is one that I know Will will enjoy to answer. Oh boy. This is from our patron, Kel, who is asking on behalf of Ripley, who is six. Hi, Ripley. Six. I assume six years old, not like there are six Ripleys. <laughs> Six-year-old Ripley. Who asks, do you think it is possible for prehistoric marine animals to still exist deep in the ocean or in undiscovered enclosed seas under the ground? Excellent question, Ripley. It's an age-old question. This is this is a very popular idea, and there are some things that hold true with it, like the coelacanth we talked about, yeah, which that's... was found deep down and was an ancient fish we thought was extinct. Uh, you also get things like cryonoids that still persist in our oceans today. You know, sea lilies that we still have around but are more famous in the fossil record than they are today. Right. Brachiopods are also like yes, that. Yes, exactly. So... There are groups that have seemingly, against the odds, survived in the ocean. 
And the other reason it's so tempting to want to say there must be more is because we've explored or thoroughly explored so little of the ocean. You know, the common thing is we know more about the surface of the moon than the bottom of the sea. Right, right. Because there's less atmospheres of pressure on the moon. Yeah, it's easier to study the moon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just look at it. How many atmospheres can this ship take? (laughs) But we run into a couple of issues when we're expecting to find... Uh, especially big, but really any populations, groups of extinct or ancient, thought extinct, or ancient sea life down there. And the big part is, if they're supposed to be hiding in the deep, deep depths, the bottom of the ocean is actually not a great place to survive. No. It's what we call the oceanic desert. Even the coelacanth, as we mentioned, isn't bottom of the ocean. No, it's deep for us. It's deep water, but it's not... Way down in the, the dark depths. It's it's shallow enough that it was caught by fishermen. Right, exactly. So like, we're fishing in the water it was swimming in. For an animal to be so deep that it's almost impossible for us to find. Like, you know, up until recent years, the giant squid was almost impossible for us to get living evidence of. Right, we found carcasses. Yes. Dead ones that would wash up. Beaks in the bellies of whales and we had dead ones but we'd never seen one alive because they lived deep down and were very elusive. But we still had evidence for a big animal to be surviving deep down and hidden. It would have to be staying there basically the whole time and there's not enough food on the ocean floor for most big animals. Right. This is a, you hear the suggestion come up with things like, I mean the movie The Meg. Yeah said this with megalodon a population in a hidden pocket deep under the water but in the real world there's not a lot of food there's not a lot to sustain a big animal like that and it'd be real hard to have a population of something big or substantial without some sort of evidence making its way we should be finding carcasses teeth yeah something like that remains from its prey you know some evidence of it feeding or living down there Now, for like underground seas or, you know, areas that are kind of locked away, uh, the version of the Meg was a deep down in a trench, there were hydrothermal vents, which are those chemical vents that can support bacteria that then can be the basis for a whole ecosystem. If you go to those ecosystems, most of the things are very small. So very tiny things with a couple of big predators that move from area to area, like large deep water sharks. But you're not likely to find anything substantial hiding around those because, one, it's not a lot of food. Mm -hmm. And two, those aren't permanent. Those vents will eventually close. I would suspect that if you did find something prehistoric, what you're likely to see is, we talked in this episode about the Tuatara, how the Tuatara is a member of this very, very ancient group of reptiles that used to be very diverse and that the, the most of them are gone. The Tuatara is the one leftover piece of that group. The Tuatara itself is not prehistoric. No. It's a ev- recently evolved member of that group, but it is a representative of a group that was more popular yes. when it was ancient. And that wouldn't surprise me to find, oh, this crab belongs to yeah. a, a more ancient group of crabs or... This thing, oh, we didn't think that this group was still around in this part of the world. That kind of stuff. Like if we were fi- suddenly to find a small shelled cephalopod 
like cousins of the Ammonites or something. Like a Nautilus yeah, type an, thing. A Nautilus type animal that was hiding someplace because it was a very small habitat and small animal. That would be super exciting, but not crazy unexpected. It is extremely unlikely for us to discover that like a Mosasaur or right, right. a plesiosaur or and stuff. You know, or giant shark is still swimming out there because those are big animals and they leave a mark on their environment. Even the giant squid, which has no bones, was still leaving remains. I do like yeah. the note about underground because mm-hmm. what that makes me think of is there is this long running, I mean, these days it's mostly a sci-fi concept. Yes. Right. Journey to the center of the earth type thing where you, if you dig down below the continent, you'll find these big pockets of, in Journey to the Center of the Earth, it's pockets of underground seas or places where dinosaurs are still roaming. One of them was mammoths being herded by giants, like weird stuff. (laughs) Uh, In Marvel, it's the Savage Lands. Yes. Which, like I said, I'm not sure how how much that was a serious suggestion at any point. But I'd also wouldn't be surprised if most of those tropes are just in response to Journey to the Center of the Earth. Right, right. But it is a trope that goes back. In the real world, there aren't really like massive underground oceans. Or or even really ecosystems. Or hidden ecosystems. You can get surprising underground ecosystems of like bacteria and worms Mm -hmm. and, and things like that. And we do find new species in caves all the time. But it's usually not like this was buried underground. It was this cave that you could swim to or walk into. And then we found this one shrimp that has never been seen before. So in terms of finding prehistoric things sort of hanging on deep down under the water or under the ground, for plesiosaurs and giant sharks and mosasaurs and things like that, very unlikely. But for members of groups that we thought had diminished or had disappeared Mm -hmm. or that we didn't realize had little, you know, crabs or squids or something that stuck around in this part of the world... Yeah, no, that is totally reasonable. Absolutely. And stuff like that has happened where we've found an animal and gone, oh, wow, you're actually a cousin of this fossil group. We did not know they were around nor that you were related to them. But it's usually not things that you're going to make a movie about. Right. So that's it's it's scientifically less exciting. Yeah. exciting. Super exciting for scientists. Yes. But in, uh, Hollywood wouldn't would probably not take it. Won't be biting any boats in half. Ta- Hollywood is going to be too busy making their horror movie about Kias. <laughs> <laughs> Man, if they were in the birds, like see there you go. See, if you had Kias leading the charge in the birds, it would have been well, now, over. What I want now because we made the comparison is I want a Planet of the Apes movie but with parrots yes and your kias could be like your gorilla equivalent yes (laughs) oh i'm so happy about this i want a kia as a as a familiar in D &D because like can do it would be so so useful and horrific i'll take a moa (laughs) kel and ripley excellent question thank you very much for asking and this is going to bring us to the end of our episode where we say Thanks for listening. Thank you to our requesters. And make sure now to check out our blog where we're going to put a ton of links to all these crazy cool animals and plants and weird things. We release episodes every fortnight. Mm -hmm. Keep your eyes out for our live chat stuff upcoming. For more Netflix party movie type stuff, go to the Zazzle store and check out our cool new merch with Rob's art on it. 
And as always, let us know what else you want to hear about. Our ears are open and our Twitter and email and stuff are receptive and our list is ever growing. We are no shortage for ideas, but we always like to have more. Yeah. Till then. Bye, everyone. Bye. Oh, man, I could have made a uh, there was a a golden opportunity when you're talking about flightless birds to say fly, you fools. Oh, let's do the episode again. Next New Zealand episode. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Common Descent podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.